It's hard to believe that um, we're getting ready to, uh, this, this sermon and next sermon will be our last two sermons in the Old Testament, and then we uh, will have finished up the Old Testament portion of our storyline, and then we'll be starting off with the birth of Christ and tracking right along and ending up um, at Revelation, um, and the end of Revelation at the last Sunday in November, and so that's what the, the preaching calendar is looking like. Um, this morning, we will be in the book of Nehemiah, and um, let me just take just a second just to welcome you. I know Pastor Derek has already done that in the beginning, but it is uh, our, our delight just to see you. Um, if you would, just take maybe a second, look around the room, and um, you know, flash a mask smile, you know, a smile behind your mask at those around you, and as we say also, good morning to those of you that are joining us this morning on the live stream, and so um, it's just uh, our privilege as we open up God's Word together and study it. It's um, our privilege and our prayer that we would make much of Jesus this morning. Even though we're in the Old Testament, we see that um, this text of Scripture points us to Christ, and it points us to this truth, and this is what I want us to know. What we see in this text of Scripture, and we've seen it before in the past. We saw it a few weeks ago with King Josiah. We've seen it in other places in the Scriptures. This is the truth. It's what we see is the primacy of God's word for God's people. That God is a God who has spoken. That God has decided by his own sovereignty and his own will and his own counsel. God has decided in his own grace and mercy, we could even add to that, to reveal himself so that you and I don't have to guess at what God is like, but God has revealed himself to us. He's revealed his, his divine attributes in creation, but God has specifically revealed himself in and through his word. He is a God who speaks. We see that all the way back in Genesis in first week when we talk about creation, we see a God who speaks things into existence. We see it time and time and time again. We've seen it in the prophets. As the prophets would, would, would declare and utter these things, they would follow up what they had said with, thus saith the Lord, that God is speaking through these men that he's anointed and appointed and raised up and given his very word to them. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And as John writes, Jesus is the word of God made manifest among us. He is the very word incarnate living among us. And when Jesus comes, Jesus continues to preach and teach as a prophet, as the son of God who is a prophet. But Jesus didn't at the end say, thus saith the Lord. But Jesus says, you've heard it said, now I say unto you. It's the authority of Christ is what we see. We see this even in the day of Pentecost. After the spirit comes, what happens on the heels of Pentecost is, a man under the anointing and unction of the Holy Spirit stands up before the people and he preaches, he, he proclaims, he heralds the word of God. Peter's going back and preaching from the, from the Old Testament prophets, Joel and Hosea and others as he preaches to the people. And we see this again, the apostle Paul was a church planner and he was an apostle, but he was a preacher. And what we see is the truth happening here, even for us, we see the primacy of the word of God for the people of God, that whenever God's word is forgotten and neglected, that God's people, they languish. But whenever God's word is desired and cherished and sought after and read and obeyed, what we see is God's people, they flourish. We're gonna talk about spiritual flourishing and the keys to spiritual flourishing is found in the word of God. It's your attitude towards God and his word. 
And when we talk about spiritual flourishing, this does not mean the absence of trials or the absence of suffering or the absence of sin. That's not what the Bible means when it gets to spiritual flourishing. It's not the absence of those things, but rather it's the presence of Christ and the power of the Spirit in your life in the midst of suffering, despite your sin, in the midst of trials that you have a certainty and a hope and a confidence. You have a joy that comes from only through the Spirit and that comes as we, as we flourish and spiritual flourishing comes as we cultivate the Spirit through the, through the Word of God. And so that's what's happening in Nehemiah chapter eight. It's on page 403. Let me lay just a little bit of context for you that we talked about last week that um, the, the uh, Jerusalem has been destroyed practically, like the Babylonians invaded uh, Jerusalem, and in their, in their conquest over Jerusalem, they laid siege to it. They built walls around it. They destroyed the inner walls. Uh, they flattened the temple. I mean, they have, they have literally, they have uh, destroyed the city. They carted off, the Babylonians carted off the, as we said, the cr- kind of the cream of the crop of the people. They've carted them off. They've taken them into exile. They've deported them. But here's some good news for us. The Old Testament doesn't end with, with exile. That's good news. Like that's, that's a good word. Like the Bible doesn't end there. The Old Testament doesn't end there. The, even the Old Testament narrative, it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with hopeless exile, even though the people deserve it because of their sin. But it ends with, uh, with longing and expectation and it long, even hope. It, it ends with a repopulation and a rebuilding, even of the holy city of Jerusalem. That's, what's, that's what has occurred. The Babylonians will be overtaken by the Medes and the Persians. And the Persian king, a man by the name of King Cyrus, he will issue a, a decree. It's called Cyrus's Cylinder. We, we have that. That's a real artifact that you can get on an airplane and fly to a museum and you can see that mug. It's a real thing. And so in 539, King Cyrus makes a decree to which he says that those that have been deported and exiled out of their cities under the Babylonian captivity can now return, including the Israelites, including the Judeans. And so that's what we see in Ezra and Nehemiah. That's what they're about. It's about this post-exile work, a work in the city of rebuilding and renewal and repopulation. Kind of like us, we're in a repopulation process for, for us. And it's happening in waves. There's waves of people that are coming back to the in-person gathering. It's as if we've been exiled by the coronavirus and people are living out. And now they're asking the question, well, is it safe to return? Is it a, okay? When should we return? And so we see that happening throughout uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. We see it coming in waves. Ezra will come in one of the first waves. Ezra will be, is a, by vocation, he's a scribe. He's a priest. As he comes back into the city, he'll spend 14 years studying the word of God before Nehemiah 8 happens. In fact, Ezra chapter 7 says this, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statues and rules in Israel. That's Ezra's vocation. But Nehemiah is different. Nehemiah is more about construction. Nehemiah will come in a later wave and as Nehemiah comes, he will be all about uh, rebuilding the walls and rebuilding the city. And you see that throughout the book of Nehemiah. Now the city walls have been rebuilt. The temple has been rebuilt. Again, it's been flattened. All of the, all of the um, pieces of furniture have been carted off or hidden. We don't really know, including the Ark of the Covenant. We have no idea from this point forward, the Ark of the Covenant is never mentioned. It's not even mentioned here. 
So we don't know whether, did the Jews hide it? Did the Babylonians take it? We don't know. I know some of you are like, no, I know. It's in a warehouse in like Area 51 or wherever that is. No, that wasn't really happened, right? That's not true. That's Indiana Jones. That's not a, we don't know what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. It won't return, we don't believe, to the city during this time. Or it won't be there when Jesus arrives. It's not even mentioned again. But nevertheless, it's kind of a picture of what has occurred just decimation. But now what we have is a repopulation coming. And so if you have your Bibles and you've turned to Nehemiah chapter eight, would we stand? We'll see the importance of that even here. If you're able, I know for some of you, it may be tough, get up and down, up and down, and that's okay. You can still stay seated and reverence God in his word in your hearts. We'll start in verse number one. It says, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate and from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe, he stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mathathiah and Shema and Ananiah and Uriah, Hilkiah, Massasiah on his right hand and Pedadiah and Mishael and Malachajan, close, Hashem, Hashbadadnah, Zechariah, Meshulam on the left hand. And Ezra opened the book in sight of all the people for he was above all the people. And he opened it and he opened. And as he opened it, all the people, they stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God and all the people, they answered, amen, amen, lifting their hands. And then they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also the Levites, and the Levites are named there, but last thing we need is me to butcher more names. The Levites, they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is the word of the Lord. And Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks that you've revealed yourself and your will for us. And Lord, even today, as we talk about you, the keys to spiritual flourishing have been revealed in your word and we give you thanks for it. In your name we pray, amen. Well, I could have easily probably come up with 15 points from this text, no doubt. I, I had five at one point and then knew that it was just 
a little bit too long. And so I kept trying to be more concise and be more concise and be more concise. And so I've come up with these um, three main points for us as we, as we look um, through the text of scripture and look at this historical narrative bit. Um, it's the keys for spiritual flourishing. The spiritual flourishing comes as God's people must desire God's word. The first key, key starts in our hearts and it's a heart that desires the word of the Lord. Second key for spiritual flourishing is then you must hear God's word expounded. And I know that's, a, that's not a word that you all probably use. Uh, I use it because I'm a preacher. That's what I do for a living is to expound or to exposit or to exegete the, the scriptures. But expounded just means, it, it means more than taught, but it means to teach. It means to teach with clarity. It means to explain. It means to kind of tease out. That's what we mean by expounded. But you need to hear God's word explained, taught, applied to your life. And lastly, God's people to, for spiritual flourishing you must respond correctly to God's word. You must respond correctly. So let's start with God's people must desire God's word. Now, this is a huge thing for us. We'll bring it right down already home for us at the Point Community Church. This is huge for us that we, uh, we see this as foundational truths for us, that we as a church community, we believe and we have a high view of the Bible. We have a high view of it as the word of God. It touches our belief about the word of God. I believe it should, and it does touch everything that we say and everything that we do as a church, that this is clear for us, that we believe that the Bible, that the Bible that you hold in your hand, we believe that that Bible, it is, uh, it is authoritative. We believe that it is inspired. And what I mean by inspired is it means that it's divine. It is from God to man. It is not from man about God. But it is God writing and declaring and revealing himself to men. And then God has, by his own grace and power, he has uh, superintended over it so that what you and I, what we hold in our hands, it is, we believe, it is divine. It is inspired. It is inerrant. That means it is without error. I don't care what other people may say. The Bible itself is on its own. It is without error. It is authoritative, which means the Bible has the final say in all things. It's not about what you may think about certain things, but what does the Bible teach about those things? Because ultimately, they are coming from the creator. The Bible's coming from God to us about himself, about life. We also believe this about the Bible, that it is sufficient. It's all that we need, as Peter writes. It's all that we need for life and for godliness is contained in God's word. In fact, if you tell me what you believe about the Bible, I will tell you what you believe about a hundred other things. The Bible isn't something we could just, our, our belief about the Bible and our view about the Bible isn't just something we can relegate to one area of our lives, but it is something that touches every piece and every portion of our lives and of our theology and how we do lives. Now, as we look at this text, notice how Nehemiah says that the people have gathered. He says it like this. He says that they have gathered as one man, well, this illustrates the unity of the people. That's what he means by that. They've gathered as one person. There's a unity of mind as they come together. It's similar as what happens on the day of Pentecost that Luke describes it like this. They were all in one accord. There's a unity that's happening there. And their unity comes from their belief about the word of God. We see their unity in the desire of what they're asking from Nehemiah and from Ezra, that they, the Bible has unified them They've come to gather around the word of God. 
But the word, the reading of the book of the law, it will be central. Not a man. They haven't come to hear Ezra, but they've come to hear the Bible. They've not gathered to hear Ezra and the Levites' opinions about the Bible, but they've gathered to hear the word of God. And the word of God, when it's rightly divided and rightly understood, it always brings unity. Sometimes we think the word of God brings division, but really when it's rightly believed and rightly understood, it should bring unity. Despite our differences, the Bible is what unites us. Now, the focus of Nehemiah 8 is more on the people and the congregation than it is on the preacher. Now, that's, a, that's an important distinction for us to make. Many of us, most of us here outside of myself and uh, the other elders, you're, you're members of the congregation and this message is about, it's about you and I have sat where you sit. I have been a member of a congregation for a longer period of time than I've been a pastor or a preacher. But what is happening, even what we see here, I make that distinction because of this, because false teachers don't draw a crowd congregations produce false teachers. Sometimes we may look at a false teacher and we may say, man, that dude can really draw a crowd, but that's not what the Bible teaches us about false teachers. If false teachers don't grab an audience, that what happens is an audience, a congregation produces a false teacher. We see this as Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.3. He says this, for the time is coming when people, that's a congregation, that's members of a church, that's people that claim to be Christians, when people, the society will not endure sound teaching. That's biblical teaching. But what will they do? They will, they, by having itching ears, that's the problem. They want their ears tickled. Having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and they'll wander off into myths. There are congregations where Bible preaching and Bible teaching is not enough. The congregation says to the preacher, give us something more or we'll leave. Properly entertain us. Properly tickle our ears. Give us myths. Give us speculations. Give us theatrics. Give us something other than the meat of God's word. May it never be here. May it never happen here. In fact, what we see happening is the same for Bible preachers and teachers that we faithful and we strive to be faithful Bible preachers and teachers. We too are a product of our people. And what we see happening here in this text is we see the, the desires and the spiritual appetites, the private desires and spiritual appetites of the people is being evidenced by what they tolerate and what they listen to and what they're drawn to. I've got a dear pastor friend, uh, Michael Graham, who's up in Hamilton, Ohio, um, you'll get an opportunity. Some of you met Michael, and Michael uh, hopefully will join with us in, in sometime in December to preach here. But Michael got asked to preach in a local congregation up in Ohio somewhere, and you know how it is up in Ohio. I mean, it's the wild, wild west to begin with. But nevertheless, Michael's there, and he gets asked to speak on a Wednesday night to a church. And this particular church, they were having other pastors in to fill the pulpit, to preach to their people. And Michael goes in, and the week before Michael preaches, this other joker preaches, and the dude just says a bunch of trash. He just says a bunch of nonsense. It's just not biblical, not true. It's not really borderline, like what you would say, heresy, right? And have biblical grounds to stone the brother on. But, you know, biblical, you know, maybe it was that, maybe it wasn't. It was just man-centered trash. And the pastor of the church was talking to Michael in the green room before they took the stage. And he's like, man, I don't know what to do. Like, first of all, is my people really liked it. 
The second thing is like, we've not put that guy's sermon on the website yet, but we got all these people asking for it because the guy was a good preacher, right? Or at least his, he was charismatic. We could say that about the guy. He's charismatic. And so he's asking, this guy say, Michael, what would you do? Would you put that sermon up on the website or not? And my, my boy, Michael goes like, I don't know what to say what to do at this point. He goes, I know this, like, first of all, is that guy would have never preached at the church where I pastor. And second of all, if he would have preached there and he would have preached that message, he would have been booed off the stage. Not by me, but by the congregation. And that's the same thing I feel like true for you all. There's pressure. You produce good Bible preachers and teachers because you have spiritual appetites that have been trained and been discerned where you desire meat that I know I feel the pressure to bring like the A game and not that I've got to be like on and entertaining week in and week out, but I got to be precise in my biblical exposition because you desire meat. And that's what's happening here. A private desire and a hunger for God's word is being expressed and being evidenced publicly. I mean, notice that. Notice where it's taking place. Where are the events of Nehemiah? Well, it tells us in the scripture, it's not inside the temple, not inside the walls, but it's outside of that. It's at the water gate. Now that has nothing with, to do with Richard Nixon, right? It's my dad's favorite president. Um, it has nothing to do with that, but it has everything to do with their desires. It have everything to do with public, being public. It's uh, the, the, the entrance, the main entrance to the city is the water gate. It's where everybody goes to get water, hence the name, the water gate. It's beside the spring that feeds the Kidron Valley. And so they're out, uh, or the Kidron uh, Brook, they're out in public. They've built a wooden pulpit. It's up high. Nehemiah's taken that position. They've gathered in unity. And then they say to, ne they say to Ezra, one cry, and the cry is just simply this, bring us the book. Bring us the Bible. We want the Bible. That's what they cry to Ezra. For spiritual flourishing, God's people must, uh, must, must hear God's word expounded. They must do it reverently, with reverence in their heart. We see this in verse number two. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. On the first day of the seventh month, he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. So that's about six hours. So they stood listening to God's word being read by Ezra for some six hours. They're in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And look, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe, he stood on a wooden platform for that they had made for that purpose. Skip over those names again. And Ezra, he opened the book, verse number five, in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. So now this isn't just aesthetically that he's above, but it's a position of authority, that he's a man of authority under the authority as he reads God's word, because God's word is authoritative of our lives. And as he opened it, all the people, they stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered and they said, this is your shot. What did they say? Amen, amen lifting up their hands. And then they bowed their heads as they and, and they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then the Levites, they helped the people to understand the law. 
while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. The people in our text, they were attentive and they were reverent. They were attentive and they were reverent as God's word was read and then God's word was expounded to them. Verse number three mentions their attentiveness and verses five and six, it shows their reverence. It shows up in their posture. They stood up. Most of the time here at the Point Community we stand for the reading of God's word. And we say that doesn't mean that God's in heaven giving us two thumbs up because we know that God doesn't have thumbs. If he did, he would give us two thumbs up. No, it doesn't win us an audience with God, but what it ultimately should show, it should show our posture towards God's word. It should be evidenced in our heart as we revere God's word. They stood up as if to, to greet a royal visitor and then they bowed down in worship. Now, they're not bowing down to Ezra. They're not bowing down to the scroll itself, but rather they're, they're bowing down to the God who has inspired this writing. They're bowing down in worship, not a worship of the scroll, not a worship of a man, not a worship of a system of the Levites, but they're bowing down to worship the very God that all of this points to. But the truth is when we understand what the Bible is, when we understand what the Bible is, Reverence should fill our hearts and should fill our minds when we understand that God has spoken to us through his word, that God has superintended over and preserved his word. When you realize, as Isaiah says, that the grass, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. That whenever you believe that and know that, and you hold it in your hand or you have it on your phone, when it's being taught, when it's being preached, reverence should enter your heart. Humility, a posture, and worship. Alistair Begg, a, a pastor that I, I dearly love and listen to often, Alistair Begg, his outline for this text was simply this. The people gathered expectantly. They listened intently. They responded appropriately. And then they departed joyfully. Probably should have just took that one. Not that mine has improved in any way on it, but that's so good for us. And I pray that's the same thing that we do week in and week out here at the Point Community Church. That we gather expecting to hear from God. We gather expecting God to change us and to challenge us and to transform us. And then while we hear as best as we can, and I know that's gotten even more difficult as many of you have your kids with you and we welcome that, but we try to listen intently and then we respond appropriately and then we may depart joyfully at the end. People listen and they're intently. They can be reverent in their hearts, but also the word should be correctly divided, correctly expounded, correctly taught. And this is what the Levites are doing. Look at how it's described. They are giving the sense to enable the people to understand the word of God. It's almost like a declaration in there that sometimes the Bible can be tough to understand. The Bible, we can read the text, but we also oftentimes need the text to be interpreted for us. We need it to be explained for us. We need it to be applied to us. And that's what we try to do week in and week out in all of our classes. That's our aim is biblical teaching that is clear, that is accurate, and that is applied to life. 
I mean, even the Apostle Peter will say, uh, the Apostle Paul, he'll say like, some of his writings are hard to understand. Some of the truths that he share are hard to understand. Now, I would say the ladies that have been going through the study on First and Second Peter with Miss D, I would say you would probably, like I would say, I would say, hey, Paul's easy to understand. Peter, on the other hand, you're tough to understand, brother. But nevertheless, sometimes the Bible is difficult to understand. Mark Twain said it wasn't the sections that he found difficult to understand that he had a problem with. It wasn't those sections of the Bible, but rather it was the sections that he understood the most that gave him the most difficulty in life. Like ultimately, it wasn't the things I was fuzzy on, it was the things, the clear biblical teachings that I really struggled with living out and doing those things. And I think that is so true. That is so true. Our ultimate aim in preaching and teaching God's word is never information alone but it's always transformation. It's transformation. We want to cultivate biblical knowledge, but biblical knowledge that ends in worship. We never want anyone to leave saying, oh my, what a great preacher. Not that you would, but if you would leave and say a great preacher, for us, that would be a miss. But we want you to leave saying, oh my, what a great God. What a great God that would love us and stoop down to become like us and ultimately to save us. Spiritual flourishing, in order for there to be spiritual flourishing in our hearts and in our lives, then we must respond correctly to God's word. We must respond correctly to God's word. That it is spiritually dangerous for us to read the word and to study the word and to hear the word without the goal being obedient response. It's dangerous to your heart and soul to hear God's word and not respond obediently and correctly to God's word. And so what was the response? What's included to us? I think it's a great response for us to have. The first response that we see is repentance. We see that in verse number nine. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Check this out. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people, they wept as they heard the word of the law. Why were they mourning and weeping? Well, they're mourning and weeping in response, in repentance to the, to the law of God being taught because they understand themselves to be sinners under God's law. They're weeping and they're mourning because they, they understand how much they have sinned against God. This gets in more into detail. We know this because of chapter nine in the book of Nehemiah. But the fact is, the more of God's holy word, as it illuminates your life and illuminates your soul, what it does is it, it exposes more and more darkness. That's just the way that it works. Like if, you, if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, you know what? I, I can really live for the Lord if I just could get a hold of this sin or that sin or this evil desire or that evil desire. If I could just conquer those things. I mean, I remember thinking like that, like, man, if I could just get a hold of my tongue, if I could just get a hold of my lustful thoughts, if I could just stop this particular habit, if I could just stop lashing out in anger. And then guess what? Whenever you get victory over that for a short period of time, and that's usually how mortification works, you get victory over a short period of time, there'll be something else right there. And then as you focus in on that, that other thing will creep in. That's why we're always constantly, as, as Luther said, when the Bible calls us to repentance, it means all of our life should be lived in repentance unto the Lord. They're mourning and they're weeping here because they're, because they're repenting. 
Now an odd thing occurs. I can't imagine this. I can't imagine at the end of the sermon, if you all started weeping over your sin and you were like, woe unto me, I'm a sinner. I can't imagine me saying, stop that, knock it off. But that's kind of what Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites do. They say, stop, this day is holy. It's set apart unto God. Don't mourn and don't weep here. Don't, you know, it's always like, hey, quit mourning your sin. It seems as if that's what they're saying. But look at verse number 10. Then they said, I want you to do this. Go your way. Let's break this thing up. Let's, we're going to scatter now. I don't want you to go your way. I don't want you to eat the fat and drink sweet wine. Now, those are two things that are happening there. What he's calling them to do is to remember the sacrifice involved. We just made a sacrifice. There's a sacrifice going to take place. And he's saying, hey, go eat the fat and drink sweet wine. That's also a picture of celebration. I want you to remember a sacrifice and I want you to celebrate. You see where we're going, right? And I want you to celebrate something here. I want your, your mourning to be turned into joy. That's what they're saying. How can we do this? Well, he says it here. Also, let me just also, and I'll make mention of it again. And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the Lord. Do not be grieved, he says, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Ooh, what a great text, right? That's a good one for a tattoo or put on Instagram. That's a beauty right there. The joy of the Lord is your strength. What he's saying is the clouds of godly repentance should quickly break up. That as we even think about sin and how it works in our own lives, we think about it, it's very cyclical in how it works. I know that's true in my life. That as James says, sin, it always begins with sinful desire, evil desire in us, and then temptation, which is opportunity. Satan often works in that to tempt us. Temptation comes our way. Many of us, you know, sometimes, if not almost all the time, we give way into that temptation and we sin. We violate God's law. We do that thing. And then as that sin comes, on the heels of that sin comes right guilt, right? Guilt comes, conviction comes from the spirit. And then we kind of have two options to go forward. You're feeling that guilt. You know, you shouldn't have done that thing. Hopefully you're really, you're sorry and contrite in your heart for doing that thing. And you can go one way into condemnation and self-pity and self-loathing, beating yourself up. You can do that or you can go another way. And the other way is thanksgiving. Now I'm not saying don't ever weep or be sad over your sins. Certainly we need more of that. But just, I want you to know this, that you are not forgiven on the basis of the length of your contrition. You're not forgiven by the depth of your self-pity or your self-condemnation. You're not justified by your promise that I'm gonna try really, really hard to never do that thing. I'm gonna do better and try harder. But what Nehemiah says, remember that the joy of the Lord is your strength. That the joy for us as New Testament believers, the joy of knowing that God has forgiven you of all of your sins because of the strong, and mighty work of Christ. That Christ's suffering and Christ's death and Christ's resurrection, that those were mighty works to bring about the total forgiveness of God's people. And even God, he did that joyfully and not reluctantly. And let that fill your hearts. Let that fill your minds. It was for the joy set before him that he went to the cross to endure the cross. That when you think about God so much, it impacts your, your thinking and your living and your prayers and, and, how, and how you act. I want you to consider uh, a, a sto two stories about two different doctors. 
The first doctor is actually a true story. Um, over, like, over my little vacation, it was a little staycation, uh, my oldest daughter, Kennedy, had a tonsillectomy, and so she went and saw the local doctor who will uh, remain nameless, the local doctor that drives a, an Aston Martin. That's this doctor, so let that just also work into your thinking as well. And so this doctor was there, and on day number two, actually in the middle of the night of night number two of, my do- of Kennedy's surgery, Kennedy started developing a lot of uh, complications to her surgery, and she was very sick all through the night. And finally, about four o'clock in the morning, I was sleeping downstairs in Kennedy's cave in her room, and Kennedy and Luann were upstairs. I had no idea that they had been up half the night with her sick and it was terrible. And finally, Luann comes down and she's like, you know, I need you to know this is going on. Just pray. And so I prayed for a minute and then I went upstairs and then, you know, we start talking back and forth and we called the hospital and talked to a nurse on call. And the nurse said, by chance, did this doctor give you a phone number to call in case of emergency? And we said, yes. He called us, he gave us his cell phone number. And she said, you need to call that. Time out. It's 4.30 in the morning. There's no way on earth I'm going to call a doctor and wake him up out of his sleep to tell him that my, my, our daughter's vomiting, right? We're not, we're not going to do that. We can't do that. Like, that's a, and she's like, listen, it's his job. That's why he gave you the number. You need, to, you need to call that number. And so anyway, we called that number, and he pretended like he'd been awake. You know, uh, hello, doctor, uh, how can I help you? You know, like, and we're like, please, you just woke, we woke you up. But our, our thoughts about this doctor that, well, we don't want to put him out. Well, we don't want to bother him. Well, we can't do that. But oftentimes you and I, when we're in the midst of our sin, we can think about God like that. We can think about Jesus like that, who's reigning and ruling and interceding, sitting on a, right, sitting on a throne right now at the Father's right hand, interceding for us. And sometimes you and I, in the midst of our sin, we can say, hey, I can't do that. I can't bother Christ. I can't go to Christ like that. That's the story of one doctor, but let me tell you the story of another doctor. I've been reading an excellent book that my friend Brian Hendricks gave to me, and it's just simply fantastic. In fact, um, today I will be ordering it for, um, well, yeah, I will be ordering it, and you will be buying it for um, the entirety of the staff. I want every one of them to have this book in, your, in their hands. I want you to have this book in your hand, but uh, Dane Ortland in this book is called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. Dane Ortland, he says this, Imagine this kind of doctor. He says, a compassionate doctor has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. He has had his medical equipment flown in. He has correctly diagnosed the problem and the antibiotics are prepared and available. He is independently wealthy and has no need of any kind of financial compensation. But as he seeks to provide care, the afflicted refuse. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. Finally, a few brave young men, they step forward to receive the care being freely provided. And what does that doctor feel? Joy. Joy. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing, for it is the very reason that he has come. How much more, if the diseased are not strangers, but his own family, so it is with us, and so it is with Christ. He does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon, with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. It is why he came. He came to heal 
He went down into the horror of death and plunged out through the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace to his people. This is who Jesus is. We can go to him. We can experience joy despite our sin, despite our suffering, despite our trials, despite everything. We can experience spiritual flourishing as we come to him and receive fresh forgiveness from him. Not only does it produce repentance and joy, but it produces good deeds. Ezra and Nehemiah, they reminded the people to send portions from the part of the sacrifices that they could eat to those who had nothing. God's word should produce humility and compassion and a concern for others in our hearts. It's a reminder of what Paul says in Titus 2.14, Christ has come to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous. They're zealous for good deeds. They're zealous for good works. They're zealous to do something. And lastly, it produces worship and obedience in remembering. It what follows after the text that I stopped, but 13 and following, it tells us that they, they began the Feast of Booths. It had been a long, long, long time since the Israelites, uh, the Judeans, the Jews had celebrated the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. And in the Feast of Booths, they remembered their time in the wilderness. They camped out in booths. That's exactly what they did, in tents. They camped out and they stayed outside. They slept on their rooftops, many of them. They did that again. They're remembering their time in the wilderness and then them coming into the promised land. They're remembering God's provision despite their rebellion. They're remembering that God fulfills his promises. And this is how we will close out this morning. For the first time since March the 8th, you and I together will take the Lord's Supper in obedience to the command of Christ, who said to do this in remembrance of him. Of him. We will take the Lord's Supper this morning um, at the conclusion after I pray and say amen. And as we sing this final song, the elders uh, who are available, Pastor Sean and Pastor Frank, will come down the aisle. They'll have gloves on and we have some little cups that have the elements already sealed up for you. And so they will drop those into your hand. So those of you on the, on, on the middle part of the aisle, if you can just maybe uh, motion to them as to how many you need. Um, if it's just you, just stick out your hand and they will drop that into your hand. And then when you receive that, um, on the top will be a piece of cellophane and you can peel that back. And then that next thing is the wafer, it's the bread. Um, let me just tell you, it tastes like styrofoam, but it's not styrofoam, it's actually a wafer and you can eat that then you'll peel a piece of foil after that and the cup, the juice is underneath that where you can take that. So we have opportunity this morning to remember Jesus. Just like these in the text who went back to remember. They remembered the Lord's provision despite their rebellion. And may we this morning, may we remember God's provision in sending his son Jesus Christ to die the death that we all deserve to be resurrected again from the dead, that even in his resurrection, you and I, we have renewal and we have resurrection of our own hearts and our own souls. It is the onus that brings about transformation so that whenever God's word is preached and whenever it's listened to, that it can stir our hearts because our hearts, those of us who know Christ and have been changed by Christ, they have ultimately been changed. The heart of stone has been removed and a heart of flesh has been placed in you. And just like those Israelites being camped out, 
camped out on the rooftops. They remember God's provision. They remember God's promise. And maybe you, even this morning, you'd remember. Remember God's promise to change your heart and to change you. Father in heaven, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for your word. As the psalmist says, it's a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our, our paths. And we hide its word in our hearts so that we may not sin against you. May it have a sanctifying effect on our hearts, even this morning as we've heard it. But Lord, may we, as we hear your word, may we both be satisfied in the hearing of it, but may we also hunger for it more and more. Lord, I pray that, Lord, that in a time such as this, that the longings that we feel in our hearts, that we would recognize that they're genuinely longings for your word. They're longings to experience you in and through your word. So Jesus, may you do that. As we remember you, Jesus, may you be made much of and may you be glorified as we think about the beauty and the truth that you are purifying for yourself a people, that we are your possession. May we be zealous toward good works, toward godly living. Use us, Lord. May we not be isolated and nearsighted in our living, but may we be available to your spirit to be used by you. We give you thanks for this that represents your body broken and this that represents your blood shed. In your name we pray, amen.